transition from like online school to going back to the regular schedule is um, for like online school with the workload we would have like maybe all week to do it or um, we would have a full day till 11:59 p.m. to turn an assignment in so if you didn't take a test during class you could do it after whenever you know but now it's like you, when you're in class you have to do it like no exceptions you have to get it done like big, very big like time sensitivity management and just um, deadlines, more proper deadlines, and so I feel like workload can feel a little bit more stressful even though that was how it normally was before COVID. Hi everybody, welcome to the Health Science Podcast. I'm your host, Adam Kritz. We're going to talk today about academic stress, and it's a topic that we've been covering the last couple episodes. We started off talking about the mid-semester drag with Anna. Uh, who's at the end or, you know, later in her collegiate academic career. And then last episode, we t- I talked to some l- alumni from my high school program here at Forest Grove who are currently starting their college academic careers. That voice you heard at the very beginning of, of the episode uh, is of our student producer, Fiona, who's a high school senior and one of my students. And she does a really fantastic job of explaining from a high school student's perspective what it feels like to be back at school after doing a year of distance learning. A lot of the topics that Fiona introduces here, um, the high school counselor Sarah Cox and I um, explore more in depth uh, later in the episode. I think it's generally thought that the reason why we're back in in-person school is because it's better. It's just better. It's yeah, better it for is. students. Yeah. It's better. You, and you, you think that it is too. You yeah. feel like you're learning more in person. I mean, some days I wake up and I'm like, I really miss online school. But it's just because like, it was just like easier to just like, you know, wake up and just do it and just go to class. And then. Do you feel like you had a bunch of freedom and responsibility during distance learning and now that freedom and responsibility is diminished by being in class? It is kind of weird because during online school like transportation was easier because I would just be from my house and if I had anywhere else to go I could just easily walk or go somewhere Um, but now it's like if like since now I'm at school I have to find rides home and like how am I going to get here like manage those things so I felt like I had more freedom with like transportation and my social life too like I could I would do like homework parties with my friends or we'd go to class together at my friend's house um and so it was like we could work on homework together but now it's like if I don't have a class with my friend I don't see them but yeah I definitely feel like there was, and it's kind of weird because it's distance learning, but for some reason there was more freedom with it, and now that it's school, it's like you kind of develop less of a social life because you have to do all these things and homework and stuff like that. Like, I know I have a really busy schedule with school, extracurriculars and stuff. So what, that's an interesting take. So you're saying that 
being back at school, you have less social life because the time constraints of following a class schedule. Sounds really weird to say that, yeah. Because I think that's the opposite of what people thought getting exactly. kids back to school was going to be. Yeah. Because um, I've noticed kind of a similar thing with my daughter. Is it during distance learning while she's doing kindergarten, she'd do her distance learning. And then as soon as it was over, she would run outside and the, all the neighborhood kids right. would just go out and play at the park. And it was very social. And mm -hmm. I don't know what her... her school day looks like but she was super social during distance learning um that's a, so what what is your schedule like now oh gosh um well i dance basically six days a week well, i let's, only let's, get those days <laughs> how, about, how about this let's start in the morning um, on a typical day and just go go to to like you know when when you're I would say bedtime, but like when, when you're done having responsibilities. So I wake up um, for school, no matter what day it is. It's usually the same time besides Wednesdays. And then go to all my classes. What, wait, what time are you waking up? I usually wake up at like 7. <laughs> and okay. sometimes I'll wake up even later, like at 7.30, and I only have like five minutes to get ready. Um, but it's fine. Um, and so I'll go to school, and then I'll... On Wednesdays, there's Key Club right after school, so I have to do that. Um, but other days, I just usually stay after school and work on homework and stuff. Um, and that probably goes to like 4.30. And then I have to find a ride home to get my dance stuff um, because I either have dance at 5.30 or 6 after school. Um, and so then I go to dance for um, probably about an hour or two. On the days that I, it's at 5.30, I'm assisting a class, and then I have my own class afterwards. So it doesn't get done till like 8.45 or 8.15, and then other days it gets done at 9 because it transitions throughout the week. Um, and then I get home, and I notice that like when I shower, I don't like fully get ready for bed until like 10.30 now because like I take really long showers. So I'm just, and then I'm, by that time I'm already so tired and I'm like, I should probably go to bed and I don't want to do homework. Um, so I just go to bed and then repeat. Okay, and so I, I'm gonna back you up a, a little bit here. So you, when, can you walk us through like an, like an A day at school? Um, so let's just say it's like a Monday. So I wake up at like seven, go to school at 8.15, or school starts at 8.15. Um, I go to government. Um, usually in that class, we either are like taking quizzes or tests, and then other times I'm working on other homework because I get done really easily. Um, and then I go to AP Bio. And how, how, how long? Because there's people listening to this that aren't students here. Right. So those are hours long. An hour long, sorry. <laughs> hours. Well, be, it's, it's longer than that. Right? Yeah, we it's have 90, 90 minutes. Minute, yeah. 90 minute blocks. Um, and then go to AP Bio. Uh, we do a lab or a test or um, just taking like three pages of notes um, and then there's like break before that too um, and then go that, that breaks like 15 minutes yeah. in between first block and then second I go block. to avid right afterwards 
Um, and, and what's what's AVID class for people who don't? Um, know? That's a college preparation class. So we like learn like how to take like college-based notes. Um, right now, we we did our FAFSA. We made our FAFSA accounts. We already applied to colleges early action. We're doing scholarships right now. My teacher's calling it 12 days of scholarships because she's trying to make it like Christmassy. It's really funny. Um, but yeah, so we're doing scholarships right now. Um, so that's what we've been doing. And then I have mid-lunch, so we go to AVID, have lunch in between. I usually stay in the classroom and work on like honors English homework because I have that block right after. Um, so I'll do that and then we finish class and then I go to honors English. Um, that class is really fun to be honest. Ms. Bloomquist is a really good teacher. Um, so we'll like do like Socratic seminars. Um, we'll do, we, right now we're um, reading a book, um, The Things They Carried. It's, a, it's about the oh, Vietnam War. Um, so we like read and annotate. There's like groups A and B and then we like present to our group like what the, what we annotated and what our discussion questions are and have like little mini Socratic seminars. So it's pretty I mean, A days are my hardest classes. On B days, I have Algebra 2, and that's my hardest class throughout the day. Um, and then right after that, I just stay after school and then go to dance and then sleep. Yeah. <laughs> and then, so, and so I know just from AP Bio and Honors English, like, there's quite a bit of homework just associated yeah. with those two classes, AP right? Yeah, AP Bio is a lot of homework. Yeah. And, um, well, it's, both of them are, it's either really like a lot of homework or just homework that's really time consuming. Students don't know if they can approach their teacher because they don't know what they're going to say. Like, because me, I'm an overthinker. So like, I'm like already planning out how the conversation is going to go in my head. And so I'm like, what if the teacher like says no? So I just won't ask anything. But you're already like giving yourself like the note by, before you even ask. Walk me through that somewhere. So like, <laughs> <laughs> like if I'm failing a class. Yeah. I'll be probably like, and if I want to talk to the teacher about it, but I don't know what they're going to say, sometimes I'll just, I won't say anything, because I'm like, I don't know what they're going to say, and if it's bad, then I'll get, like, nervous, so I just kind of give myself, like, an automatic, what are they going to do, or just avoid it, because I'm just like, I don't want to deal with what they're going to say. Do you, do you think the same way about your dance coach? Mm. If you're struggling with a, with a, a dance routine, would you feel comfortable talking to your coach about the dance routine? Yeah, I mean, we kind of, like, sometimes the, the team, like, if they notice somebody's, like, off account, like, they'll, they'll say, like, hey, I think it's this. And so sometimes it's nice. But with the coach, it's kind of obvious because she's always watching us. So she'll be like, Fiona, you, you messed that up your account behind. So she kind of already knows. Mm -hmm. But if I do have to, like, ask a question, like, I feel comfortable with her because I just see her so much. And I know I see my teachers a lot, too. But I feel like it's it's just different because she's my coach. So I'm like more comfortable with her I don't know it's hard to explain. does it feel more like a partnership with your dance coach yeah kind of and do, do teachers feel more adversarial yes yeah like Miss Johnson like I I'm like still learning how to communicate to her because like I don't really talk that much in that class so when I come up to her I'm like oh like I'm kind of struggling right now but she'll be so understanding about it you know like just because like I haven't built like a complete like kind of teacher relationship with her, teacher-student relationship with her yet, like, she's still really understanding. And so it's kind of nice because it makes me stop overthinking what she's going to say, you know, because I just go for it. Yeah, so Miss Johnson's, like, a really great – she's one of the sweetest people I've ever met. I've heard so many good things about her, yeah. Yeah, and 
so helpful. I mean, just it, it's just a, such so phenomenal, like helping students. It's interesting that you would even find her intimidating, <laughs> no. like adversarial. Yeah. What do you think gives the impression that teachers are adversarial? Like, because I, I mean, I don't know a teacher that gets into teaching without wanting to help students. Right, yeah. You know? Like, I, I, I love anatomy and physiology, but I'm here to teach students, yeah. not necessarily the subject matter. Right, right. You know? And so what do you think? gives off the vibe of being adversarial. I think just students. kind of like, I mean, I know teachers are supposed to be strict, but I feel like those ones that are just like, um, well, like they're kind of, I guess they just kind of like are the ones that are like, oh, well, this is what college is like, so I'm going to prepare you right now. And like, they're just kind of like, don't really check in with you as much, or they're just kind of like, oh, well, you were here figure it out like just something kind of just like minimal like not really like oh hey like I noticed you were gone like can I help you like what's going on it's kind of hard to explain but like I feel like the teachers that are just kind of more straight to the point kind of just give off that like okay I can't really like talk as much in this class or like I can't really just take a moment to just like do something else I have to like completely do this right now and if I don't I'm going to get in like complete trouble about it or something Can, so is it kind of like a no pain no gain attitude yeah. in the class yeah. like yeah. this is going to hurt a little bit yeah but you're going to be better for this hurt right and you don't that you then don't so does it feel like Teachers are the source of grades, and a student's job is to extract the highest grade out of a teacher. <laughs> I mean, I don't know. There are some students that are like, oh, I, I should have gotten an A. It's completely their fault. Because I remember, like, my freshman year, I got a really bad score on an English project, and I was so mad about it. I was like, oh, are you kidding me? This is A work quality. And I just completely didn't realize that it was my work and that if I actually deserved an A, I probably should have done it a little bit better. I think English is a tough class, though. It is a tough class, to, but... To, well, I mean, just to grade because yeah. lang language teacher, arts all, is subjective. Every single teacher that I've had in English has graded an essay differently. Yes. Like... In AP Lang, Miss Nelson was like, we are going to scratch everything you've learned. We're going to write it a whole new way this year. Miss Bloomquist this year, she's like, you're not going to be writing a five-paragraph essay. It's going to be completely different. So it's like you have to constantly relearn different versions of an English essay. Well, but, I mean, that makes sense because there's yeah. so many ways of writing. Writing right. an email is different than writing a short story, which exactly. is different than writing a memo, which is different than writing a sonnet, which is different than writing. Mean, there's so many different yeah. writing styles. It makes sense that yeah. different teachers have different styles of, of teaching. And so I guess that would create the perception that, so there's, I guess there's a game. You have to figure out what the teacher wants yeah. and then <laughs> yeah. write the paper the way the teacher wants. Yep. Which probably does seem like it's an advers that is an adversarial position. I mean, that's the best way I could explain it because I feel like it didn't make sense when I tried to say it the first time. <laughs> no, that that that's really that I could definitely see it yeah. from the perspective of a student now, where the teacher's the adversary. Yeah. They're standing in the way of getting an A. Yeah. I really like the way that Fiona highlights a few points. One is that 
distance learning for students did have some advantages. Fiona did a good job of highlighting some social advantages uh, that she experienced with distance learning. I know that might not be true of all students, but from Fiona's perspective, that's what she thought. Um, she also highlighted pretty well that coming back to in-person school does have its stresses. Um, she also highlighted that she has a very busy schedule. Many of my students have very busy schedules as well, not just with school, but they have work. Sometimes they're taking care of siblings. Um, they do have um, busy lives outside of the classroom. And the last point I really appreciated how Fiona and I talked through was that teachers don't always have this helpful role from the student's perspective. Sometimes teachers can be adversarial. Um, and it's hard to ask for help and, and get resources um, for problems that students could be having. having. Um, I explore these concepts further with my conversation with high school counselor Sarah Cox. Enjoy. Why don't you start by introducing yourself? That way people know your voice. Yeah, as, for as sure. Mine. Yeah. Um, so I'm Sarah Cox, uh, first year high school counselor here at Forest Grove High School. I have seven previous years at Century High School in Hillsborough. So although first year here at Forest Grove High, have experience in our community doing this work for a while. Um, you want me to give a little background? Sure. Here? Yeah, go for it. Okay. So uh, originally, way back in the day when I was finishing my undergrad at Oregon State University, I thought at that time I wanted to be an English teacher at high school and I was put in a position to be able to have a class of my own for uh, my mentor teacher I was working with. This was back when there were like less regulations and you didn't really even need to get an emergency license, but he was out medically and I took over for a ninth grade class that was wildly, um, uh, I don't want to say out of control, but I did not have the preparation to be a teacher in that environment. That would dissuade most people from going into teaching English. Yeah, <laughs> so I was very dissuaded in my last semester of my undergrad and went to a wonderful advisor who talked to me about the school counseling program and that seemed to fit what I was looking at. At that time, I thought I less want to be in the classroom, but I really dig being with students and working with students in that environment. So I checked out school counseling. It happened to be a good fit. And that's sort of how I started my pathway there at the end of my undergrad. So you, you got to have the experience of being in a classroom where you're still a student OSU. It was still time to kind of change your course. Absolutely and made that course change and have been very happy with it uh, since I've done that. So I think that all was, you know, for however people see those kind of things, it was a purposeful moment for me and, and making that transition was awesome. Um, I have been at every level since then. I started at elementary uh, in Mount Angel, Oregon. So I was at St. Mary's Elementary for two years. And then next stop was in Hillsborough and I've worked at a district level. I did K-1 behavior coaching with kinders and first graders that are a little bit squirrely in the classroom. Did that for a few years. I've done PBIS district-wide, which is our positive, supportive, proactive systems in schools. I worked with every school 
elementary, middle, and high on their uh, positive behavior systems that they have in their buildings. And then I transitioned to being a middle school counselor at Evergreen Middle School. I was there for three years, shout out to the Eagles there, and then transitioned to Century High School where uh, I had class of 2018 from when they were ninth grade all the way through to their 12th grade year. So um, in my second round of students there that are now seniors this year, really looking for just an environmental change from Hillsborough. I'd been there for 15 years and just looking for something new and spot opened up out here in Forest Grove and here I am. So first year here and excited to be here. Well, good. Yeah, we're, we're, we're glad to have you. Um, so you, you, that was a good explanation of like what you've done like in the past and um, there's already a few acronyms I don't think people would know. <laughs> That's when they're, when they're Welcome listening. to education. Yeah, yeah. Well, it was, it, it's, it's not just education. I think it's any industry has their own set of acronyms. Like yeah. we, we had we had a, a army guy on and he kept using acronyms like I have no idea what you're talking about. Same thing when we had the athletic trainer on. And For so, sure. But um, maybe let's let's maybe can can we walk through what your what a day looks like here at Forest Grove and kind of some of the some of the things that you you would be encountering some of the tasks that you'd be doing and some of the job responsibilities that you'd have here at Forest Grove. Sure. Specifically. Yeah. yeah. Depending on the week, there's a number of things that we might be doing at any given time. So at the beginning of the year, a lot of my time was spent being out in the hallways, getting to know students and staff, reconnecting more than anything, trying to... So, so we, we okay, so you're talking about how you're standing, standing in the halls and... Building and relationships. Building relationships, and that's... Can, can we just... I've heard so much about like the building the relationships, getting students to, to reintegrate into the school and that sort of stuff. What have you seen in your experience as a counselor about students reintegrating into the school so far? I mean, has there, has there been a big noticeable difference from students this year as opposed to your 15 years previous? Oh, for sure. It's a noticeable difference this year. And there's a couple of things that I think are going on there. The first is thinking about the developmental milestones that happen at each grade level. In particular for our students that are ninth and 10th grade, some of those students haven't really been in a building, in a school, face-to-face -face with the daily practice of school since mid upper elementary. So some of those students have entirely missed seventh and eighth in a building. And so a lot of the behavior that we were seeing at the beginning looked very much like things that typically we might not be addressing and planning and supporting in a high school because they've had that practice through seventh and eighth with that next kind of developmental shift to ninth grade. And it's almost like some of these students we're watching them walk in and we're seeing what I used to see at seventh grade with students in the middle school experience that I had. So it's almost like we need to do this shift and pivoting to meet our students at that space so they're getting the support that they need 
in the absence of that for the last couple of years. Oh, would, would, you, would you become, so because I don't see this, I, I'm genuinely curious just as a classroom teacher, because I don't see those, one, I don't teach freshmen. Yeah. And so I don't see those seventh grade behaviors um, in, in general. And I've only heard about what goes on in the halls here because I, I just haven't, we have a big high school and I just don't see what's going on in the halls. Do you mind talking a little bit about some of these behaviors that you're seeing that you would normally see in seventh grade, but now it's applying to our freshman population? Sure. It can be both behavioral and academic. And I think a lot of times those are intertwined, but um, on the behavioral aspect, not knowing how to deal with conflict, conflict with peers with friends uh, and not knowing how to navigate that in sort of like a socially acceptable way so it causes conflict to sort of disperse in a lot of small different bubbles throughout the day and even if that's not all the way to some like bigger extreme of violence that you're seeing although I think our numbers of fights and violent incidents that we've seen are definitely at a higher level this year, not only at Forest Grove, but just across schools, um, across our nation, schools are experiencing that. I think I even heard, we have a middle school in uh, outskirts of Portland that shut down for three weeks because the, yeah, yeah, so they've, they've had a shutdown because the violence was so high in that middle school, they had to like recalibrate and figure out how to come at it in a different way. So I think we're seeing that show up at a higher level. And my experience here so far has been, it really seems to be our ninth and our 10th graders that are struggling with that. Um, How do you deal with conflict? How do we come together and be a community and figure out how to navigate that together? So that feels like that's sort of more on the behavioral side. Academic side, I think there's just like no practice that's happened. We've sort of lost this thread of the daily in-person practice that students have through those couple of years of middle school to be prepared and ready-ish at ninth grade to come in and be successful here. And the scary part about that is that... um, it's not that grades didn't matter before, but now they really matter because they go on a transcript that means something in the future. So they're coming in day one, not really knowing the value of that grade and what it does on that transcript in a system that, as far as I can tell, is fairly unforgiving at this point around if you end up with an F your ninth grade year, what does that look like moving forward? Um, and it's such a high stakes academic space that they haven't had the practice in building prior to stepping in that ninth grade year. Even some of our 10th graders are in that space of like not having that understanding of what that really means on paper. And it's sort of, it's so high stakes, we don't go back and change those. So you end up with ninth and 10th graders that are already in quite a big hole and I don't know that we as a system have a way that we're ready to address that yet. Yeah, and you're, you're thinking it's because, or it sounds like the, the working theory is that there's certain milestones in, in the middle school academic environment that would have taught those skills. And those skills are missing in our, our freshman and sophomore population. And those holes are, are showing up in, in academics and behavior. It's my guess just from, and that's really coming from 
my own experience of being at a middle school being like oh wow this is what I really remember sitting with and having the structures in place at seventh and eighth grade to support students through that particular developmental transition from elementary to that next level of okay now I have multiple classes that I'm managing and I'm walking from one place to the next and I have some autonomy and practice for two years around that without it going on a transcript and now they're coming into a high school where it's very high stakes and they haven't had that two years of practice and that is it's just really coming from my vision of like I remember these behaviors and I remember these being very specific things we were working on in middle school and we had different structures in place to manage and support students in that developmental space. Now we have a high school that I don't think we have that really built in. We've never really needed it. So we're scrambling a little bit to figure out, okay, how do we support this transition back? And what I've heard termed and coined the thaw and it seems so true like when we started we didn't see all of this it was like we all just kind of came back in and it was still we were still these like icebergs that hadn't we're still moving very slowly and now the great thaw is happening and oh boy it's just like it's overflowing kind of left and right and and it feels very reactive right now as a school community to this like great thaw that's happening and students are kind of waking back up into themselves without this previous practice. So so the thaw in this case becoming more liquid is a is a positive development? Both in your I analogy? think both I think it's like it's positive cuz we're coming back to community. Yeah. After we've been away from that for for a while. So it's positive in that sense but and I don't I wouldn't use the word negative on the other end of that, but it's Just, like we don't have the systems or structures in place to manage it. You know, like Gotcha. So there's more. There's more movement uh, into that's the, Yeah. And at the moment, we're reacting to the flood rather than having like we we don't have the structures built yet, and so it's like okay, we are in re- reactive mode to to that flood of of the great thaw. <laughs> gotcha. So so things at the beginning of this because we're recording this right now, so it's it's November twenty third when we're when yep. we're recording this, and so we started school beginning of September, and things were pretty much in stasis then like kids were showing up and they were present we had like very little schedule change requests which sounds like something that's typically in the past here been pretty high at that level and we had very little at the beginning like people were just like navigating it's like coming back out and slowly navigating and now it's sort of like okay now we're getting back into whatever this new normal is but what is this new normal yeah Okay. We so in, in the last couple of episodes that we recorded, I recorded one with with my co-host Anna, and she is doing postgraduate um, academic work at Pacific because she's she's going to be applying to graduate schools, and she was talking about the mid-semester drag, is what she called it, where she was just this all the stress was pile, piling up, um, and she just felt. Like every day, every day was the same and it was just work and she showed up and it was just one day after the other, after the other, her schedule's totally booked. And it's not that it was bad. It's not that she couldn't handle it. It was just kind of like this numbing type feeling for her. Um, 
And then I talked to a couple of alumni. Um, one was in her first year of college. The other one was in her in, in his second year of college. And they had a much more positive view on their workload. Um, they loved the freedoms that they had in college. Um, they said the classes were intense and fast paced. They had plenty, but they had all this time in their schedule. Um, it sounds like they still felt like there's like this, the stress of midterm stuff like that were, were a factor, but the, it seemed like the newness and freeness of college was keeping their spirits up. And I'm not sure. I'm wondering how much stress and the return on the stress affects some of these behaviors we're seeing in the high school. Are, are student, is the stress put on students too much and we're, we're starting to see weird behaviors kind of spill out from that stress of going back to school? That's a good question. I don't, and I don't know the answer to it. I think about it and what feels right in my heart is that when we come back from this extended time with children, that we have this sort of scaffold back into what school is. I don't know that we were, okay, I'm gonna be an educator that just says this on a podcast. I don't know if we're doing, if we're doing great work prior to the pandemic. I think there's just a lot of room for improvement within our system and structure of education prior to the pandemic. Then we go into the pandemic and I'm not sure where we are right now as a system. Like, I don't know if we're trying to just go back to what we had before, which wasn't that great, or if we are trying to shift into something that maybe can be more accessible to all of our students and supportive for all of our students. I don't know where we are on don't, that journey. Don't, don't you think the pandemic highlighted a lot of things that were unnecessary in the system before. Yes, absolutely. I'll, I'll, I'll give you a concrete example. Uh, I think it's kind of a concrete example. So in medical terminology during distance learning, um, I had a pretty flexible due date policy with, with the assignments. And, and medical terminology is pretty straightforward. It's three quizzes and a test for every unit. And it's just a tremendous amount of memorization and, and that sort of stuff. Um, but because I had flexible due dates, and I, and I made it so students could have unlimited attempts on any of the assignments, so they could keep retaking it until they get the grade they wanted, um, which you're memorizing terminology, I figure repetition's good. Um, I, I calculated all the missing assignments, and so I, I assigned a total of 1,054 assignments for, for all the students for all the, all the different assignments. I was missing seven by the end of the semester. So it was a 99.3 completion wow. percentage, Yeah. right? It, it was unheard of before in my classes. Yep. And it was just one of those things like, there, there's something there where something that I did during the pandemic and giving students 
uh, more flexibility and more freedom and, and automating the grading and, and those sort of things, creating videos for, for the lessons, something within that caused a, a, a significant increase in the amount of assignments got, that got turned in. And when I come back now to my classes, I, I wonder how to apply those things that I've learned in the pandemic and get rid of the things that I didn't think were that useful. Yeah. And so that's kind of what I'm struggling with now. And so man, I'm talking too much. I should be asking you these questions. No, but this is so good because that is where I feel that's exactly right. So that experience that you're having as an individual, I feel like our entire system is having that experience and each of us are grappling with that right now as we shift back. Like, ah, oh, there are some things back here that are clear weren't working very well. There's this period of time that really is a trauma for our nation that happened. We all go through that together. We find some things that work better, but ultimately not being together as a community was really not in the best interest of our community so now we're coming back on the other side and I'm not sure where we are in that jumbled mess that's kind of where I think that thaw comes in it's where like not really I'm not a hundred percent sure what our next steps for support are it's this is kind of a new navigation of how do we get to that how do we get to a space together where we re-community and it feels like to do that, we didn't just go back to the old model that I think our eyes are open now, if they weren't before, was not at the top of its game. Yeah, and what what I'm kind of interested in, I, I think it's a different solution if depending on the problem that we assume. If we assume they missed important middle school milestones, sure. that has a different solution than is it is it an overload of stress? Right. Th those two things ha would have two completely different solutions. Yep. And the reason why I say the stress part of it is we've been studying, uh, in exercise physiology, we were talking about the general adaptation syndrome, um, which is the initial stage is the alarm stage. So if you start running, your body responds with a whole bunch of stress hormones and, and allows, you, allows you to run. Um, and then if you stop running, the next stage is recovery, I think is what it is. Um, and, and your body will, will rebuild itself and actually will overcompensate a little bit so you do a little bit better the next time you run. But if the stress continues long-term, you're gonna reach exhaustion and that causes uh, uh, some long-term chronic effects of stress, um, which, is, which is detrimental to, to performance overall. And so, and I also know that the, our brain cells are tissues in our body just like anything else and are fatigable and that the central nervous system takes the longest to recover of any other tissues involved in exercise and that it takes cognitive effort to sit still and not say anything in, in a chaotic, envi chaotic environment sure. and so I, I wonder if it's more so that students haven't missed a milestone they're deconditioned to do classroom, to, to be in a classroom environment. It takes more mental effort to just basically sit and play school, yep. much less learn anything, yep. right? But just to sit and play school, 
takes enough amount of takes a, a lot of stress um, and cognitive effort so students become fatigued just by showing up to the classroom and you put a social situation on top of that plus some learning and some grades and not the integrity of all those different systems aren't going to hold up yep and I think that would have a different solution than the milestone theory. Sure, sure. But what? Yeah, thoughts. I, I'm I'm rambling. I feel, no, I. <laughs> I feel like I'm using you to say my ideas, and that's not, I, don't, I don't think that's the point of a podcast. Uh, I would argue that even with the milestone piece, that it would be hard. I think stress is a good spot f for us to look at and dissect and figure out some support around. I don't think you can separate that from whether or not students have missed some developmental milestones because that in and of itself just adds to this overall feeling of our bodies and brains freaking out because you're back in the space where you're, the demands are very high. And I like your point that you're talking about, like it takes practice to sit and attend during any length of a learning experience. And to not have that genuine practice for those two years can just be a jolt. That in and of itself, just sitting and learning right. in that environment and doing what you need to do to play school, to be the student in that environment already has its toll. And then if you add on to it that you may have genuinely missed practiced behavior from two years and now you're hopping in sort of at this place that we've always had this expectation you were prepared and ready-ish for that transition in ninth grade. If you don't have that, that just adds on top of the physiological things that are going on for you um, because it feels so disjointed mm -hmm. coming back into that space. Um, one thing that I think is important for us to note around stress is, and again, I don't, I'm unsure how this conversation happens mid-pandemic. Are we now getting post-pandemic? I don't know where we are in that in our journey, but wherever we are today, I think stress looks different than it did previous to this community trauma that I would say we're still actively in. Um, but I think it's important to label and, and kind of note what uh, standard stress looks like, even if that's pan standard pandemic stress. Like as a community, we are feeling this higher level of stress and it's generalized. Like there's this generalized feeling. And I don't think that we talk enough about stress as a normal part of our day to day and then pandemic stress now being a normal part of our day-to-day -day right now. And there's this collective experience about that, especially with high schoolers that I work with. Anxiety, stress, these labels that they give to what they're feeling, they feel solo in that. Or, or like it's, it's something out of the ordinary. Right. And there's some sort of acknowledgement and support I think we can be providing, even if it's just education around stress, what it feels like, how it manifests, all of that, that can normalize a bit, that a whole heck of a lot of us have this, it's normal to have stress, it's normal to have anxiety, and then you don't get in this spin in your head that adds 
a, le a whole nother layer to it because it feels abnormal, it feels wrong, it feels like something is wrong with you, which then creates its own spin-off. It does its own like little tendril off mm -hmm. of this normal feeling of stress. Right, and I think, I think they're, from what I, I'm definitely not a psychologist, but, but I'm gonna pretend like I am one, I guess. I guess that's what I'm winding <laughs> up towards. It seems to me that students are stressed and then they have anxiety about their stress. Yeah. And those two things seem to happen at the same time. And that's, a, that's problematic because once you solve the stress thing, because to solve stress, all you have to do is recover. Yeah. Get a good night's sleep, eat some good food. Um, you know, that's gonna reduce stress. But you can reduce the stress, but the anxiety about the stress seems to stay. Like they, it, they, they feel stressed and they go, there must be something wrong with me. Like you're saying, why am I, I shouldn't be feeling this stress. Something's wrong with me. I, I, I need to, I can't, I can't deal with this. Um, it seems like being able, like just saying certain things to students like, um, well, in, med, in, in all my classes on tests, when students say, oh, I don't know this answer. I said, no, 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 that's, that's not true. Um, says you're not sure of the answer but your I don't know is very different than an I don't know of a, anyone else that's not taking medical terminology right now if I ask anybody else that's not taking medical terminology their I don't know is really I have no flippin idea what the answer to this question is your I don't know I'll if I had to put money I'll, I'll bet all my money on your I don't know as opposed to anybody else's sure. I don't know and for whatever reason that seems to take away their anxiety about the stress yep. is phrasing things like that. And they, they seem to do much better about it. And so I, I do think that talking about what stress is normal and the, the process of normal stress and what it can do for you, um, I think would be pretty beneficial for students. Absolutely. Because you, you, in exercise, you don't get to be a better athlete by not having stress. Mm -hmm. You have to balance the stress with recovery, and, and if you do that appropriately, you're going to keep getting improving your, your athletic abilities. And I, I believe the same is true with cognitive abilities. Yeah. And I, and I think just being able to talk about that and talk about the skill building around how what you need to do to recover, what does stress look like? Being able to identify those things, to be able to articulate it, and then to know what to do about it. And I'll use recovery terms, like recovering from whatever that stress is that you're feeling. If, if we could teach the language around that, the, the cognitive, the ability to be able to recognize when that's happening and to be able to respond, I think that would it would help out a ton with sort of this flavor that feels like I get a sense that we haven't built that because anybody who comes to me feels freaked out that anxiety's kicked in. You start to talk about it and dissect it a little bit and you realize this is a very normal, stressful situation. This is a very normal response to whatever the circumstances that I'm talking about with an individual and actually the anxiety they're feeling about it is very normal. It's not like they're off the charts or they, they, they could be very successful. And with just some shifting in how 
they understand what's happening for them in that moment. It, is, is there like an anxiety cascade or something? Like it's a snowball. Like once you start getting anxiety over something, you kind of get anxiety over that anxiety and it, it kind of snowballs. Well, I think students. TikTok tells us that. So I mean, like I think everybody's on TikTok right now saying I'm, uh, you know, it's like mental health diagnosing yourself. Would you oh, agree with that? Sure. Yeah. Like I feel like, and I don't TikTok, but I do have a 20 year old at home. So okay. I, I have like a little in to the, to the TikTok world, but I think there's like this constant inundation of sort of, if you feel this, this is what you have. Oh, like if you're feeling that way, you must have anxiety. And then that just solidifies this culture and understanding that we have collectively about what it means to have anxiety, what it means to have stress. And I almost feel like that's the snowball. It's the lack of understanding about um, what that really is and what we can do about it. And it becomes the, the snowball effect of misinformation that spreads very quickly. And now everybody's feeling that and believing that is like uh, where we are and where they are as an individual so it's kind of in like their own experience so kind of like whatever you're feeling it must be pathological yeah totally yeah for real yeah yeah that's that's really well the the example I use talking to Anna when we talk about the mid-semester drag is I I kind of think like it's normal to have a mid-semester drag because if I was going to choose the the Sorry, there's aspects of having a normal mid-semester drag. Because if I think of the, what the coolest thing I can think of doing right now is have like a Friendsgiving, Thanksgiving sort of thing uh, uh, for, for my neighborhood. I think that sounds like awesome. Yeah. Uh, it, it could be the best, most, uh, it's the best, most fun thing I can think of right now with Thanksgiving coming up here on Thursday. Um, yet, I know in the middle of that process, it's going to be a lot of hard work to pull that off. Right, it's going to be stressful. I'm going to have to go to the store. I'm going to have to. I'm going to forget ingredients. I'm going to have to cook stuff. I'm going to cook it wrong. Something's going to burn. Like I just know that as a 41 year old, yep. like that those things are going to happen. And so it's except like yes, that sounds like the most fun thing in the world. Is I could anticipate the stress I'm going to feel with that and the benefit I'm going to I'm going to get from that activity, and I get to kind of decide whether it's worth it or not. Totally. And. So if I'm feeling stressed now, I kind of flip that around and say like, three months ago, this is actually the best thing I could have thought of. If, if, I had a, if I could think of something better to do with my life three months ago, I would have done it. Yeah. But teaching my classes and, and being a teacher here is the best thing I could think of with my life. And sure, yeah, if I'm going to try to any cool, fun, interesting, meaningful thing is going to involve work and stress. And I'm just in the middle of that stressful part now. Totally. Um, I usually just say thoughts um, to get out of these long rambling statements that I make and to involve <laughs> the person I'm interviewing. Thoughts. <laughs> I love Friendsgiving. Uh, well, and I think that that's a whole, I think there's this whole other, the anticipatory anxiety or anticipatory stress, which I feel like you were just describing a bit, that takes some skill to learn how to train your brain and your thoughts to push through those, right? Like, again, at our age, we figured out 
those skills a bit. I think about every time I ever have a trip to Disneyland. I love going to Disneyland. But the two nights and the night before that trip is happening, it's the worst idea I've ever had. I don't know why I decided to do this. Like, I want to cancel it all. I don't care what the what you know consequences will come yeah. from canceling the dis and then you i push through that and i come through the other side and every time it's a trip to disneyland it's wonderful right. it, it's like i love it it's a joy and this first thing i'm saying on the way back home is like i can't wait to go again that's a much better analogy the disneyland you know what analogy. i mean yeah, like that's way better. but but that's a that's a again that's a fairly normal thing but we don't talk about it so when people and more importantly youngsters are feeling it if we don't talk about it what are we waiting till they get to our age to figure that out and and figure out what those skills are so I do think it's a lot of I I just think I'm feeling like we're in a space where proactive education around some of these what I would call fairly typical wellness uh understandings of you know how you identify wellness how you identify stress and anxiety how they go together that wellness and stress aren't separated. Um, how to plan wellness into your life? Like I just think those proactive and educational pieces are really what we need to develop a foundation to handle whether it's the mid-semester drag or the anticipatory nervousness or just the overwhelm of I didn't go to class for three weeks and now. I don't know what I'm going to do. Yeah. If we could start here and and really build a foundation, I feel like then those the responsive piece has something to land on. Where right now I just feel like we're right just responding because that's all we've we have built right. so far. I, I you know I'd go a step further and even say that we have to coach students about stress because no meaningful achievement is going to happen without stress. And so if we want to have greater achievements, we need to be able to educate students about what that's going to feel like. Yeah. Um, and and to, to your point, I was very actively educated on what stress was going to feel like when, when I was in my late teens, early 20s um, through athletics. My coach would sit down at the beginning of the, of the, the training year and he would we'd plan out our training that first day and he would just go through, okay, this is what you're gonna feel like. This is what's gonna to happen to the to the your your performance. It's gonna go down because we're lifting heavy. And he would just talk me through what every stage of the training would feel like. And I wonder if there's like a because all of us teachers have our classes planned out, I wonder if there is a bit of of um cognition that we need to be teaching the students like this is how this class is probably going to feel as we go through a semester yeah i think it's I think the feel piece right like it's the thing but that because it's not taking the stress away the yeah. stress is going to be there yep. because we can't achieve anything meaningful without that stress Absolutely. but it might take the anxiety away yeah. about that stress yeah. or get at least students understand like if if their teachers said this class would get really stressful during this time and you're taking seven AP classes and a you know really tough academic schedule you might want to re-budget your time totally <laughs> something totally. like that yep one 
really great experience we had as a counseling department, um, I think it was last week, we had one of our elementary school counselors, her name was Courtney, and she came to speak with our high school counselors here. She's been doing a real deep dive into anxiety, spent some of her time um, over the last couple years just getting every professional development, reading every book that she could, and she had some real insight into anxiety, how we talk to kids about it, even how our mental health professionals talk with kids about it, some of the shifts in language that we can be doing around it. One thing I learned from that was just shift in language so that students don't always feel like I have anxiety and it's going to be here forever, that there really is brain building and skill building and connecting our neurosynapses in a way that can ultimately reduce our anxiety long term and that we don't always talk about it that way. So an example is our uh, 504 accommodations, which put plans in place for students that may have an identified disability. We can get some accommodations in classrooms for them. And our numbers are going way up on 504 requests for anxiety. And a lot of the things that are asked by a doctor, sometimes by a therapist, by a family, to put in as an accommodation is that the student can leave class and take a break, that the student can um, not give a presentation and do something uh, individually with the teacher or by video, really trying to accommodate for that anxiety, but almost this flip side of where's that line where that becomes enabling and we're not actually addressing the anxiety because we're teaching that body and that brain that is receiving that accommodation that every time you feel this, you remove and it feels better. And every time you feel this, you remove and it feels better rather than building those connections in our brains around what we can do in the moment to make it through that anxious feeling and come out the other side with a stronger resolve and a, maybe a new lesson learned, a new skill picked up over time. Right. So where do we balance those pieces? So we're not pushing too hard, but we're not enabling either. And I think the conversation with Courtney was really helpful in my thinking about where we are today, stress versus anxiety, stress interrelated, interrelated with anxiety, and how do we teach to our kids, to our families, to our community in a way that bridges this gap that I think is just creating this um, dysregulation that, that we're seeing kind of at a bigger level than we have in the past. Yeah, what, what are some signs of like normal stress as opposed to, like I, I say normal stress, but like um, productive stress. Maybe sure. is that a way of yeah. thinking about it? I, and I guess I should probably learn some terminology about how to talk about stress and anxiety too. Um, it's, yeah, so what's what's good, normal, productive stress, and then what's some more pathological mm -hmm. types of stress? Mm, I would say like, I'm noticing things like really like, I had stress about coming here today. My palms are a little bit sweaty. I feel what I would 
label anxious. That's probably not what I'm feeling, but that that's that trick of that word, right? Like I've even been conditioned to be like, I'm a little anxious about doing this. Like it's probably not anxiety, but it is my body feeling a normal, healthy, positive level of stress about coming and doing something like a podcast versus um, some things that might be like, um, we talked about doing a podcast and I could not stop myself from perseverating about that. So I lost two nights of sleep and like, Really? <laughs> You're like, oh, I've got to talk to my doctor now. No. <laughs> um, or or I, I didn't come to school day, today because this was here and I just could not make that leap. Like those, Oh, gotcha. These those, are theoreticals. You don't really stay awake for two days. No, no, no. No, no those, okay. might be, right. those might be the things that I would say are maybe a flag that I need to talk to somebody and find out a little bit more about where that stress and anxiety is coming from, if it's getting in the way in some capacity of my day-to-day. Now, the trick with that is if we give up really quickly and we don't sort of do that push through it, it can get in the way. And that's where it does, it is helpful to find somebody to talk through that so that you can navigate, get educated on sort of what is normal, what might need some additional support systems in place either temporarily or long-term. Um, and there are people out there who can help you navigate that. Um, I, I mean, I just know, like, in, in exercise, we're like, we're pretty good at quantifying and defying, d- defining stress. Sure. Right? If your heart rate increases to 70% of your maximum heart rate, we know sure. you're at this, your, your, this workload is right about your aerobic threshold and we're pretty good at quantifying that sort of stuff. Cognitive stress, you know, the pupils will dilate. Um, See, those things I don't know very well. Like, oh, really? Yeah, oh, yeah, it's, yeah. it's been my little pet project yeah. um, for a little bit. That's cool. And and so so to, to do anything meaningful, it's going to require require stress. Your heart rate's going to increase. Yeah. Your pupils are going to dilate. You're going to have, your, your palms might get sweaty. Like, yep. your body is going to respond. I think it's William James. I don't know. Uh, he was a psychologist at, like, you know, beginning of the 20th century, I think. Or either that he's the money ball baseball guy. I, I, I can't remember. Um, but uh, he said that emotions are the, the, bo- the, the, the brain processing what the body feels. And so if you see a bear, your, your, your capillaries in your uh, leg muscles are going to dilate before you're even conscious that the bear is present. Sure. And so it's the body, sen- it's your brain sensing what's happening to the rest of your body, and that gives you an emotional response. And so I'm kind of wondering if that's what students are feeling with stress. It's like, oh my gosh, my heart rate is, is increasing. I'm taking this test. Something must be wrong with me. And I wonder if it's a little bit, I don't know, just letting students know. It's like, no, 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 that's how much of it is just that that's normal. Totally. You're, you're like, yeah, it's hard. I, I, I understand it's a hard situation for you. Yep. Um, I have heart rate monitors, and we we're doing a pretest on, in, in uh, medical terminology about EKG interpretation. So it's just a bunch of EKG strips, sure. and you have to say what they are. And so it just looks like a bunch of squiggly lines. And so this one girl, I could tell she was like flushed and red, and that's what. So we put one of these like pulse oximeters on her finger, and her heart rate is like 130 beats a minute. Beautiful, like that's the. It's that piece of like being able to connect whatever your 
narrative is in your yeah. brain about what's happening to physically what you're feeling so that we can start to have that dialogue. Because once you start to understand those pieces and those connections, then we have something to work with. Right. It's not just this, like, you know, gray cloud that we don't know what to do, but we just feel like it's just there all the time. And, well, now it's just no way to get away from that. Yeah, and the irony of it is, it's like you have to, at least in exercise, you have to engage in the stress of exercise or else it gets worse. Yeah. Like you become deconditioned. You have to stress your cardiovascular system, totally. you know, 30 minutes a day or else your cardiovascular system is gonna become deconditioned and then all of a sudden more things are hard. Yeah. And so you have to keep engaging in that stress. Um, I think you are, I think that's a really wise thing to say like, of talking to somebody and that there's some red flags to say, hey, maybe I should talk to somebody. Do, do you think it would be appropriate just if students feel weird about their stress or anxiety, just talk to your school counselor? Yes. Like it doesn't have to be like a red flag sort of thing, right? Like Not if at they, all. Yeah. It, it. I feel like there's, I, I'll tell you, and again, I have been a school counselor for a number of years prior to being at Forest Grove, so this is not just Forest Grove specific. I get a sense just from the many requests that I get from students that there are two reasons that students think they need to come down to the counseling center. Schedule changes. Not at all. <laughs> not. But that is part of, like, what we help with, right? But schedule changes and, like, absolute crisis. And there's, like, nothing in between there or rarely in between there where a student will reach out to a counselor. And I think it's important for students to know that your counselors are there, that we may not know all of the answers, but we certainly know how to navigate systems to find support for students. I feel like most of what I do in my job, whether it's academic, social emotional, or college and career planning, which are sort of the three realms that I'm usually working in with students and families, I feel like my number one thing I do is refer out. Like we talk about college and career planning, I am going to let you know what resources are available to support what's out there that I know how to ask a couple of questions to get an idea of, ah, oh, this is what you're really looking for. We can clarify that and then I can get you connected to resources either in our community or at the bigger kind of larger world. I can get you connected to information that's along that pathway. Same with academics. Most often I'm meeting with a student and then I'm doing a bridge with a classroom or teachers that this student is sort of grappling with what's my next step and so I'm doing sort of this bridging and reaching out in that way academically and with social emotional it's either identifying and we can figure it out and hash it out right there in a 15 to 30 minute time together or we've got a care coordinator which works in our counseling center she's a rock star she's super easy to talk to and her entire job is to help students and families get connected to outside mental health resources and support. So maybe it's something that for a time being needs a higher level of care. And I'm a person that's there, This my colleagues are there to help be sort of the guide on the side to getting 
connected to a higher level of care. And it might be that you're working with Hannah Jadell to get connected to that. It might be that you're just working with your counselor. We also have youth contact therapists here who are actually mental health therapists that work here at Forest Grove High School. So there's a lot of different resources that we have at our disposal. Um, We've got basic need resources. So if a family reaches out and they're in a time of housing insecurity, um, needing support for clothing or food, we have, I'm not the person that provides that, but I know the resource to reach out to and connect that student to. And, and with, with your experience at other schools, is that a similar model at most of the, at the schools that you're familiar with? At the schools I'm familiar with, yes, it is a very similar model. So in Hillsborough, when I was, you know, that's my biggest Mm-hmm. Uh, space I've been for 14 years and we had care coordinators we had basic need support and I felt like I did very similar the same like I just am sort of this touch point for any sort of question that comes along and I can help navigate to where that connectivity is going to hopefully maximize the experience for that student and the family yeah and I just want to touch on one well, maybe this won't be the one last point, but um, students always are scared to talk to me because they don't want to bother me, right? And it's like, well, I didn't want to bother you about that. I had a question on that assignment, but I didn't want to bother you, so I didn't do it or something like that. Like there's, there's they, they think they're going to be burdensome or something like that. And it takes a little bit of and I, so I, I'm anymore. I'm very explicit at the beginning of the year, saying like I love talking to students. My favorite thing to do in a classroom is wheel and deal. Yeah. Like I, I'll that is that is what I'm here to do. I love solving problems. So please reach out for me for any trivial thing. Like you specifically, then kind of as a counseling department. I do you enjoy talking to students that come to you with you know issues that they're dealing with. Yeah, for sure. And I think I would, I don't want to speak for our whole counseling department, but I'm getting to know my crew. And I would say the sentiment is the same through um, any uh, caseload counselor that you're coming to talk to. I, I think we also fight the, I don't want to be a burden, but I almost feel like it comes from a separate um, space. And so I'll just give a really quick example in our department right now, I have, I'm the school counselor with the highest caseload. So mine is the highest at the moment and it's at, I think I'm at 413. So there's 413 students that as my first year, I'm getting Mm -hmm. to know. So one thing I love is that my students don't know me so they're reaching out to me quite a bit. And I've had so many schedule requests come in. I did a count and for the month of November, I've met with 80 individual students, and that's all students that either put their request in, a teacher put in a request that I meet with that student or a parent. There's 80 of those that I've done. And that's where the, when students start to see, so I've got students that'll come down regularly, and they see that I'm, they're like, you're never available, because I were on this kind of individual one-on-one student that is coming in. And so having to change the narrative for students and I want my students to know I am always available. 
and I have a very structured system about mm -hmm. how we meet so that I can effectively right. be there and be available and be present with each student because I want to give that to each and every student. That is the reason I wake up in the morning and show up to work. And yes, it is my joy to sit and meet with students and, and be there in those moments um, that we can be together. And so that, that it's training and teaching students how do you access your school counselor? For me, like, you go and you click on my Calendly and you find the spot on my calendar that works for you, I send you a pass and that is your time. That is your time, it's nobody else's time and I, that, that's important to me and I value that. And that's how we connect and I think the hard part of that is that is not always, uh, it's not that it's not authentic the time we spend together, but the way we come together isn't the most authentic. You know, having right. to make an appointment, get a pass, come down in that structured time, that system right. isn't authentic. The moment we're together is authentic, but just the, I don't know how to describe that, but the coming together isn't always organic or authentic or like, like you might experience in a classroom. I didn't even know you guys use Calendly to schedule your appointments. Is that is that true for all the counselors? Yep, we all have a Calendly now. That's our, that came out of the pandemic. That is a pandemic positivity. Like oh, one absolutely. of those things where we talk about what were we doing before and why were we doing that before? We now use Calendly because that's what we used through the pandemic and it worked really well. Because that does, that seems like a very impersonal or, or sterile way of scheduling an appointment with, with a, a school counselor. But there's authentic interactions that lead up to that. Like usually yep. there's an authentic interaction that, that happens with, you know, with a teacher or something like that. Yep. And then the student gets referred to their counselor. But I didn't know you guys were using Calendly because I would now have different things to say to the student. Yep. Like I'd say, why don't you schedule an appointment with your counselor? Yes. And after we have this authentic interaction, because that would be really helpful. <laughs> Totally. Let's put that on the PD schedule. Totally. Uh, for, so, yeah. and my little plug for that is we have QR codes that are, we have our little faces. When you first walk into the counseling office, we have pictures of our faces, what our caseload is. Then each of us has our QR code for our Calendly. I have it linked in my signature. So now it's a quick, anytime a student emails me and it seems like something that's not emergent, I need to handle this today. I'll email back and say, I can't wait to meet with you please and it's just my link that says schedule an appointment here and I and we'll meet soon and talk more about this so it's a real easy way for me to get back and kids are great at it like if I email that out within a few minutes usually I'll have that it'll pop up on my calendar and the thing I love about that is it gives the student the autonomy they don't have to guess at right. when I'm going to schedule them they don't have to guess about when that pass is going to come and they can pick which class makes the most sense to leave to come see me. So I feel like those pieces really allow the student to hold that time um, and feel like it's truly their time. So that that is really cool. Um, we're gonna. I, I got some after we stop recording. I got some ideas for you. Cool. Um, because. Yeah, I think that's important. Um, shoot, we've been recording for a while. How, how, how are you holding up? Are we ready to ready to wrap this up? I'm ready to wrap it up. Okay. Good. Yeah, that's good. <laughs> well, 
Well, Sarah, thanks thanks for coming. Th this was a great conversation. Yeah. I thought this was... Absolutely. Yeah. Um, so you're you're welcome on any time. Just let me know. Uh, yeah. Yeah. You got it. And, and this thing's popping off the charts. Um, <laughs> popping so off the charts. That's right. <laughs> um, well, we might have... Now I'm thinking we might have to get Courtney in here to talk a little bit about anxiety. I if would, you ever have... I would love that. Okay. I would love that. I'll um, send her an email and try to connect the two of you i think she she'd love equally to talk about it yeah i i i'm it's something i'm very interested in just it it, it lends itself it, it's it puts mental health in in a language that i can understand with my exercise yep. science background and sure. so i i really enjoy talking about it but um sarah thank you so much thank i'm you. gonna stop recording yay and you can stream my new song, Selfish, on all of your favorite platforms. <laughs> Perfect. Nailed it. There you go. That's what I uh, do. That's, <laughs> that's you do it. it. You, do, you do it very well. Um, you just like say the same thing for 20 million takes that sounds exactly the same and then pick the one you like. <laughs> well, you'd make a great teacher.